In today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Emmett Arya. This is episode two in our series of palliative care and end of life. Dr. Amit Arya is an assistant clinical professor, Division of Palliative Care, Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. He's a director at large at the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians. He's a chair at Choosley Wisely Committee in Palliative Care and a chair for the Member Interest Group in Palliative Care, College of Family Physicians of Canada. He's the recipient of the Excellent in Social Responsibility Award from the Department and Community Medicine from the University of Toronto. So let's have a listen. I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Arya, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles this morning and to discuss palliative care and end of life. And we'll start with the first question as being, if you could just provide a clear explanation, definition of what palliative care is and end of life. And as both of these terms are used interchangeably, but they mean different things. Yeah. So actually palliative care and end of life care should not be used uh, interchangeably, but it's kind of um, expected in a way that this misunderstanding commonly happens because palliative care is a specialty that has grown really quickly and access to palliative, you know, to palliative care is quite variable where, I mean, it, it's completely different if you're in long-term care, if you're part of a cancer care sort of clinic in home care, and it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So often we see uh, end of life care, hospice care and supportive care, um, you know, all used interchangeably when, with palliative care when it shouldn't. So first I'll start by talking about palliative care. So palliative care is an approach to care, which um, is provided to anyone with a life-threatening illness, not necessarily a life-limiting or life-ending illness. So I'll say that again, a life-threatening illness, where the focus is generally on symptom management, providing psychosocial, uh, emotional, and spiritual support for uh, people, as well as their caregivers and loved ones, uh, often family members, as well as um, enhanced communication, focusing on advanced care planning and goals of care discussions. Um, now, we really well know that it's better that people get their foot in the door with palliative care approaches early on uh, in their disease process rather than very late. And that is also why it's very important for us to uh, understand how palliative care is not just limited to end-of-life care. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. And as well, I know you just mentioned on the fact that this should be talked about. So when someone goes into long-term care, when should that conversation in regards to palliative care and end of life should be first discussed? Yeah. So we know uh, across Canada, um, the median life expectancy is around two years. Um, we know in Ontario, the median life expectancy before COVID-19 was 18 months. So what this tells us is that most of the people who um, go to long-term care, I mean, it's their last move, and really it's the place that they are going to die. Um, most individuals in long-term care homes, although not all, most of them have advanced incurable illnesses, most commonly dementia, but uh, it may be a combination of other illnesses too, such as uh, advanced heart and lung diseases, um, renal failure, um, frailty, and so on. And all of these uh, illnesses are associated with significant um, you know, burden of suffering, uh, symptoms, um, there's often a lot of grief and distress that comes uh, with, uh, you know, um, for staff and family members who are supporting uh, their loved one. And of course, it necessitates a need for advanced care planning and goals of care. So once again, this tells us that for most individuals, there should be a conversation around a palliative care approach to be integrated into care very early on and uh, perhaps uh, right at the beginning uh, during admission or even before. 
Yeah, I would definitely agree because right now with palliative care, it's it's determined by the facility based on the care plan. And with uh, Bill 3, the Compassionate Care Act, how do you see that being incorporated in long-term care? Yeah, so as far as I understand Bill 3, I mean, it's sort of an act that is going to develop a framework to try and ensure that every uh, person on Ontario has access to a quality palliative care. That's definitely very important in long-term care facilities where, I mean, really about 25% of people uh, die um, per year, and that's before COVID-19. So, I mean, what the Act uh, requires is that the Minister of Health has to develop a provincial framework and support improved access to palliative care. But I'll be honest with you, I mean, although I'm part of several organizations and as an individual, I definitely support this bill. I mean, I'm part of the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians, which uh, endorsed this bill. But, you know, I I, I think that we already know sort of some of the action that needs to be taken when it comes to improving palliative care. I mean, we already know what needs to to happen in long-term care facilities uh, with respect to um, improved staffing and improved education of of the staff around palliative care approaches. So, I mean, on a personal level and somebody who works on the front lines in long-term care facilities, I mean, I'm wondering why we cannot just implement those, um, those actions today. Yeah, I, I definitely agree on that because it definitely needs to be part of the discussion for the whole reshaping of long-term care. And for as with COVID has become so uh, virulent and subsequently restrictive for many family visits, more virtual options are being utilized. Can you describe or give an example of what is being done to deem relevant in the future? Yeah, so I mean, I've been very clear in sort of the public discourse that I've participated in and in the media uh, about uh, how family caregivers are not just visitors, but rather essential partners uh, in care. Uh, Here in Ontario, uh, earlier on last year in the pandemic, when there were these uh, restrictions uh, that came out, uh, I believe in March or April, I mean, in the very beginning, we were hopeful that maybe they would just be for a week or two. And many family members that I was talking to who were looking after their loved ones in long-term care were also um, similarly hopeful. As the restrictions went on, I actually became quite horrified along with uh, many other people who work in long-term care facilities about how they were going to cause harm. And it's just a reminder that when people lost their, like, their family members and the support of their family mm-hmm. members, they didn't just lose a visitor, but they lost care. I mean, my work uh, through the years in long-term care has really shown me, I mean, whenever I see people, I'm seeing them feeding their loved one uh, and I'm speaking to them about, about um, you know, how they come in regularly, often as a team of family members to help mm-hmm. with, you know, help their loved one take medications, yeah. uh, help them get to the bathroom, help them with, uh, you know, a dressing change, for example, and making sure that their, you know, that their care team is aware of, you know, their needs. And often I'll share with you that it's actually uh, mostly family that will recognize a change in health status and bring it to the attention of, you know, the nurses and the physicians. Um, I've been in many situations where translation, unfortunately, is not easily available in long-term care homes. So we are dependent on family caregivers to make sure that we even understand what someone is saying. If they're in pain or they need to go to the bathroom or they're asking for, for, you know, for a particular type of food. I mean, that really shows us how integral family members are with respect to care. So I absolutely think that what happened during the first wave of COVID-19, and in fact, during the first six months of the pandemic in Ontario, where family caregivers were locked out, absolutely can never, ever happen again. And we need legislation to ensure that family caregivers have access 
uh, to their loved ones. And I will say maybe not just family caregivers, yes. but essential caregivers, because in many circumstances, it may not be family, it may be friends, it may be a paid caregiver. But, you know, these are the people that have actually, in some circumstances, held together long-term care facilities, which have yeah. long, you know, been understaffed. So I really wanted to say that, and really that should be a non-negotiable. Now, around virtual care, I really think that the pandemic has given us an opportunity to improve uh, access to care and access to, um, um, you know, people's loved ones um, moving on beyond the pandemic even. So what I mean by that, I can share an example. Okay. So with virtual care, I've been involved in sort of, um, uh, you know, assessments of residents in long-term care where their family members actually live in many countries around the world. But through Zoom or a similar platform, it was possible for loved ones to join in the conversation. It was possible for them to feel involved uh, in, in their parent or grandparents' care. Whereas uh, before the pandemic, that wasn't uh, you know, an option that was seriously considered. So I think that's definitely great. And I hope that that should continue on beyond the pandemic. Um, the other thing that I wanted to add is that the complexity and acuity of residents and their care needs um, are very high. And that was an issue yeah. even before the pandemic, where our long-term care facilities were not actually designed to look after, you know, the people who live there. So with that, we have seen the emergence of virtual care options to support specialists providing care um, in nursing homes. So what that means is that... Um, um, specialists, whether it's geriatricians, palliative care specialists like myself, uh, psychiatrists, uh, internal medicine physicians, uh, you know, can become more engaged and should become more engaged with long-term care facilities through the use of virtual care. Okay, perfect. So Dr. Arya, can you just provide some examples of how palliative care is then deemed and what that whole process would look like? Yeah, so uh, palliative care shouldn't be used, first of all, as an adjective to describe someone. We shouldn't be talking about a palliative patient or we shouldn't be deeming anyone palliative. Um, we shouldn't be using palliative care as an adjective to describe someone's disease or prognosis either um, because we don't do that with other medical specialties, right? We don't say that someone is geriatric or surgical and you know so on and so forth. Um, we should use palliative care uh, to describe an approach to care which can be provided at any time during someone's life, regardless of the amount of time that they have left, and is focused on sort of relieving suffering, um, supporting loved ones and family members, and ensuring that people have regular and constant communication about their disease process and what the treatment options are um, that, that they can choose uh, at each step of the journey. Um, when I see people um, as a palliative care specialist in long-term care, uh, I can tell you that there are many sort of memorable circumstances that I've come across. I mean, there are many situations where I come across, um, unfortunately, people who are living with pain. Pain is very common for people who live in long-term care homes. And um, although I see many excellent family doctors and nurse practitioners in long-term care homes who uh, do have the knowledge to treat pain, there are circumstances where a palliative care specialist uh, could help. And there have been many circumstances uh, to elaborate more where with better pain control, uh, people started to eat more, their mobility increased and they became less restless and agitated. Their sleep and their quality of life was much better. So that is um, one of the examples about how palliative care can uh, make a big difference. I've also been involved in many, many uh, situations 
where family members and loved ones um, were not fully aware about their treatment options, uh, did not fully understand what a disease like dementia meant. And that really shows us how we need to improve our communication uh, with family members and loved ones. And that takes a particular skill set and it takes time. Really in medicine, this is what we call goals of care. And it really is something that needs to be learned like any other skill, whether we talk about surgery or whether we talk about delivering babies, it's a skill that needs to, uh, you, know, you know, that people need to receive training for and that people need to practice and people need supervision for in the beginning. And absolutely in our long-term care facilities, we need to make sure that all family doctors and nurse practitioners uh, have this skill as well. Thank you for that. And then, I guess for what you've seen in terms of with families and how they, I guess, understand and then cope with that, what have you seen and, uh, and noticed uh, in long-term care with the support system that is being provided to families? Yeah, so to be very honest, I really think that the support system is is lacking in long-term care facilities and quite frankly across our entire healthcare system. We are dependent on these uh, unpaid uh, family caregivers, many of whom, and actually most of whom are women, uh, to provide essential care in long-term care homes. And we have to take a step back and ask, well, do they actually want to be providing this care? Why is our system so under-resourced and so understaffed that we have to, I mean, somebody's family has to come in day in and day out to make sure that their loved one would get to the bathroom on time or would get enough water. I mean, that is absolutely atrocious and it shouldn't be happening. And in the context of palliative care and in the context of long-term care, where, um, you know, people, um, you know, the residents themselves are suffering and their family members are often in the process of losing a loved one. I mean, we need to completely change this system where we're not just uh, providing the best care for seniors uh, in their last year or in their last years or months of life, but also for family members themselves. We need to be supporting them with grief and bereavement. We need to support, we need to be supporting them if they need to take time off just to spend time with their loved one. And the focus should be on spending quality time together rather than having them do work in the system, ideally. And that really shows us part of the overhaul that has to happen when we're talking about long-term care. And it shows us um, about how family caregivers need to be uh, in that leadership role when we're talking about national long-term care standards. I definitely agree with you on that. And then just lastly, in terms of what would, would you consider to be the good deaths in terms of for the family member supporting that person and of course the person that is dying during their end of life. Yeah, so I really think as a, as a palliative care specialist, I, I wouldn't be the one to actually define what a good death means. I think that could be very different for different people in terms of what their values and wishes are. And as long as someone from my perspective uh, understands um, you know, what quality of life means to them. And they've had a thorough discussion which supports that. And they've had sort of, um, you know, treatments and context around them to, to make sure that that happens. That for me would be, would be a good death. So it's really what is defined by the person and their, and their loved ones. One of the lessons that have been learned in terms of palliative care that should be reimaged for the future care plan of residents in palliative care in long-term care? Yeah, so I absolutely think that, I mean, very tragically through COVID-19, 
I mean, we're hearing about, you know, deaths and cases on a regular basis. And honestly, some people are just numb or exasperated yeah. during this day in, day out. But I encourage everyone to think about how this was not just a pandemic of people dying, but actually many people suffering. People suffered and died without their loved ones at their side. People suffered without appropriate symptom management. And really, that's uh, an absolute travesty. And it really tells us how we have to do a much better job at this time. And we have to integrate um, palliative care um, when at this point in time, when we're thinking about an overhaul of the whole long-term care system, there are conversations happening about national standards in long-term yeah. care, and those must include the principle of early integrated palliative care. Um, in many long-term care homes where I work and uh, when I speak to patients and families, often, once again, palliative care is um, misconstrued as just end-of-life care. But actually, when um, in the modern definition and when we talk about 21st century palliative care, what that means is that palliative care is delivered early on in a timely way, and it focuses on maintaining quality of life. Too often, palliative care is associated with death. But actually, palliative care is for the living and is to give people in their last you know, few years of life, it's, it's meant to give them a better life during that time by improving their function, making sure that their pain is treated, making sure that they're not uh, restless or agitated, and ensuring that uh, future care that were to happen and future care decisions are based around their wishes and values and beliefs so that people understand what they're getting into. Um, for this to happen, it's very clear that we cannot have long-term care facilities which are so understaffed, where they do not have enough nurses or PSWs to provide any aspect of care. Staffing is so critical to all aspects, whether we're thinking about symptom management, whether we're thinking about making sure people are bathed or fed on time and they're not dehydrated, and making sure that there are ongoing and frequent conversations around someone's health status um, uh, you know, with, with the resident and often in long-term care homes where residents have dementia with their substitute decision maker. So for that to happen, we need to make sure that we have enough trained staff on site and clearly the current staffing ratios uh, are not enough. We need to make sure that staff are educated in the palliative care approach and palliative care is specialized care, um, like any other aspect of uh, healthcare or medicine. And thirdly, we need to ensure that uh, frontline staff, whether it's physicians, nurses, PSWs, social workers, and so on in long-term care homes uh, have uh, you know, continuity of care with the residents and the families that they're looking after because care is built on human connection and built on relationships. So that is very, very important and crucial as we move ahead. Um, I also do think that, um, you know, in addition to these three points, uh, improving staffing levels, uh, education standards, and continuity of care, I mean, it was, I sort of mentioned how virtual care can improve access to specialists and particularly palliative care specialists. Uh, palliative care as a field historically has been associated with looking after people with cancer, but we know that uh, the most of us actually uh, will not die of cancer and many of us will die from non-malignant uh, illnesses. And these are the illnesses which are most likely to end us up in the long-term care facility. So it's important for us as a community to step up and realize that our support and help will make a big difference in long-term care. And um, of course, uh, I will add that there are emerging tools um, which can be used to uh, aid and guide those working on the front lines in long-term care, uh, aid them about prognosis and help them with having these goals of care discussions. And I cannot emphasize how important it ha is to have frequent and early conversations with uh, long-term care residents and their families about their health status and the treatment options ahead. Definitely with COVID-19, we've seen one of the tragedies has been 
not just the loss of, of family caregivers and locking out family caregivers, which in my opinion was a human rights violation, but also sort of complete disengagement with any form of communication um, with uh, family members where, I mean, it seems that we live in a warped world sometimes when we've seen outside these uh, long-term care homes with large-scale COVID-19 outbreaks that family members are not just sort of being informed regularly, but they're completely in the dark about what's yeah. happening about their loved one. They're not being told the truth and they're having to protest to just make sure that their their parent or grandparent is receiving food and water. And that is an absolute calamity, an absolute abomination, and that could never, ever happen again. I agree with you 100%, because, because basically now in Canada, when a person is dying, why are residents then denied access to water or food, which the, to the family member only seems like they are being dehydrated or starved to death? Can you provide an explanation as to that will educate our audience to to understand as to the most humane practice for end of life? Yeah, so absolutely. I'm very, very happy to speak about that. Um, and this is actually one of the most common questions that I, you know, sort of deal with uh, from family members and even from frontline staff working in long-term care. And the reason for that is we often think food is sort of central to life, right? Yeah. Food for many of us means, you know, is a way that we show that we actually love, um, you know, those who are near and dear to us. And it's a major form of, of, of you know, emotional and physical and spiritual support. But actually in someone who is actively dying, in someone who's in their last days or hours of life, it can actually be one of the worst things to give to someone. And the reason for that is because it can cause more discomfort. And when people are dying, um, they often usually don't feel hungry. And I think that is the major thing to distinguish, that yeah. when people um, are in the late or end stages of an advanced life-limiting illness, they are not dying from starvation or they are not dying from hunger or dehydration. They are dying from the illness itself. From a medical perspective, I mean, that process uh, and that disease process is linked to what we call um, anorexia and cachexia, where, you know, you start to lose weight and you start to feel less uh, hungry over time. And that is part of the natural dying process. So it's just a matter of communication with family members to uh, educate people and, and frontline staff as well about the dying process. And, you know, from what we know, um, another thing that I can add here for, for people who have advanced dementia, one of the features of advanced dementia is that the swallowing muscles often become very weak. Mm -hmm. And when the swallowing muscles become weak, along with the rest of the body, it becomes very high risk that the food or water could be inhaled and could go into the lungs and cause more suffering and could even um, hasten death. So... I mean, it's not to say that people with advanced dementia can't get food and water. That's absolutely not the case. But what it means is that when someone is unconscious and in really in their last hours, um, it would not be recommended in almost all circumstances for us to give them food and water. And in, in many circumstances, um, you know, we do not recommend uh, artificial feeding or IV hydration because those two can cause harm. They can increase suffering and uh, sometimes from the evidence we know specifically around advanced dementia uh, there are large there's a large body of literature that suggests that in most in, in many situations they can actually hasten death as well so there are harmful interventions and for millennia actually we have looked after um, you know those we love who are you know in the end stages of life through gentle hand feeding um, as much as they can tolerate 
and that's really what we recommend in these scenarios. Okay, that's good to know. That's very good to know. And then if you could just speak to the palliative pain and symptom management and the importance of prescribing the correct medication, as well as the fact that palliative physicians are allowed to prescribe certain medications specific to palliative care, whereas general physicians in long-term care settings are not the ones that are prescribing these types of medications to keep patients comfortable and may lead to sometimes with these uh, medications may lead to over prescribing some of these medications. Why is there a lack of, and then the follow-up question to that is, why would there be a lack of, you know, palliative care physicians leading in palliative care and long-term care? Yeah. So I'm happy to answer these questions. And I would say that um, definitely it shows to me the lack of um, training and educational standards that we have for uh, people working in long-term care facilities. I mean, we wouldn't allow um, you know, someone, for example, to work in the emergency department, a physician or nurse who could not perform CPR. We wouldn't allow an emergency doctor to not be able to manage, you know, sort of someone coming in with a traumatic injury, not being able to handle fractures. We wouldn't allow like a doctor to work on, you know, the labor and delivery floor without being able to, you know, do a delivery. And there are many excellent family doctors who work in obstetrics and are doing a fantastic job. Um, But for some reason in long-term care, those educational standards do not exist. And that is something that must change uh, at this time. So what I mean is that, you know, there are family physicians working in long-term care homes who are undoubtedly doing a fantastic job, even through the COVID-19 pandemic, who have training and experience in long-term care and and palliative care and have integrated the palliative care approach through their practice where they're absolutely skilled in uh, offering, uh, you know, very good symptom management, knowing the doses of how to prescribe medications and how to titrate them upwards. And they have regular and frequent goals of care discussions um, with family members and substitute decision makers. But unfortunately, because it's not a standard, um, that uh, sort of scenario that I just described is Mm -hmm. extremely variable, where there are physicians who don't have this training and don't have this experience. And that is something which must change. I mean, I can bring up from a medical education perspective, um, talking to medical students and nurses. I mean, you'll be surprised to hear that nursing students and medical students don't have any required training in geriatrics or palliative care. And that absolutely doesn't make sense to anyone. I mean, at this time, it should be very clear how important it is that we have skilled professionals uh, looking after people in long-term care facilities and other areas of the healthcare system where we are, you know, seeing people who are elderly and seeing people who have, you know, advanced illnesses like dementia. It's uh, crucial. And I I wanted to give one example. I mean, Mm -hmm. I like to explain things through examples so that people would understand, Um, you know, and this is something that I use when I'm talking to medical students to illustrate how, you know, the same approach to medicine and the same approach to healthcare that we use for middle-aged people simply just doesn't work when we're talking about seniors and people with dementia. So, I mean, for example, when we think about someone having a heart attack, the most common symptoms that would probably happen in a middle-aged person would be crushing chest pain. I think that's what everybody would kind of think about. But that is not the most common symptom for someone who's in their 80s or 90s who has dementia. The most common symptom in that demographic is actually delirium. So it's delirium. It's not chest pain. So if you don't have that training and you don't have that understanding, it's very easy for us to think and sort of see how, you know, the care would, would suffer. 
And definitely during the pandemic, we've had this sort of situation where, I mean, of course, in a sort of absolute humanitarian crisis, we have to try to send in just anyone we can find, right? And in, in some circumstances, that was the military. So I'm yes. very grateful that the military went in those homes and that intervention was absolutely needed. And honestly, there's many circumstances in the second wave where it was needed in Ontario and it should have been done. But I mean, in the long run, we have to really think about, well, you know, do the people who are working in these long-term care homes, do they have the skills and do they have the training to make sure that the specialized care that is needed can be delivered? No, thank you. Because uh, it, it follows the, the next question that, because I know you had touched upon this in terms of using these virtual platforms is, can the families then request to have specifically a palliative care physician to be part of the, the care team as well? Yeah, so I think that, the, I mean, the problem that we're facing at this time, and I hope that there will be system level changes to improve access to palliative care specialists. Um, you know, the problem is that the access to palliative care, whether one lives in long-term care or not, is quite, is quite precarious. And actually there are many people, unfortunately, who do not uh, receive a palliative care uh, approach. So for example, there's data from the Canadian Institute of Health Information that shows that only one in six Canadians, and this is before the pandemic, yeah. you know, received uh, palliative care uh, at home. So that's something that obviously cannot continue, right? And in our long-term care facilities, I mean, we might think that palliative care would be a given, given that people are going there for their last months and years in the context of an advanced incurable illness. But yet um, only 6% of people in their last year of life had a, a documentation of palliative care and 21% of people uh, in long-term care facilities were actually transferred to hospital for palliative care, about one in five, which shows us really that this system and especially the, the, you know, the resources in long-term care are not set up to um, you know, help the residents. And that honestly is true for many aspects of care, not just palliative care, but whether we're talking about infection control and even meeting ba people's basic care needs, such as making sure that they're fed on time, they're taken to the bathroom on time, and they're not just waiting in their diaper and calling out for help. So this is absolutely, uh, you know, a travesty and it has to change now. Yeah, I, I do hope that this is really part of the conversation moving forward in terms of re-imaging long-term care for the future, because that would provide a more holistic approach to the care that's being provided. And then my next question would be is in terms of what you've been taught in dignity in dying, what has, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of your experience and what that really means? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I, I really would defer to uh, national experts such as Dr. Harvey Chachanov, who okay. is one of the leaders um, in dignity conserving care uh, and speaking about palliative care, um, who have done so much research and work over the years um, in, in terms of what this means. I mean, I think that with advanced life-limiting illness, which is generally the case for people living in long-term care facilities, um, you know, for me, dignity in care really means focusing on um, helping people to retain the sense of autonomy and a sense of control, um, giving them hope and helping them to understand, um, you, know, uh, you know, the future, um, making sure that they're still, you know, retaining, um, you know, their self-defined roles whether it's being, you know, a mother or a father, a parent or a grandparent, you know, a teacher and someone who still has definitely has value, someone we can learn from um, in society, um, making sure that people are treated with respect, yeah. 
and making sure that they also feel that they're leaving a legacy, which is so important to many people. Very true, very true. And then I know you mentioned a couple of the barriers for um, palliative care and end of life in long-term care, but were there anything else that was not uh, mentioned in regards to some of these barriers in long-term care? I mean, I think that uh, one thing I can add is that healthcare in general, unfortunately, has a big um, bias towards cure, right? And and sort of saving lives, to put it a little more bluntly. And while that's very important, uh, we have to give equal attention to suffering. And that's really what the palliative care approach is about. Whether someone would survive COVID-19 or not, they still have a full right to care. Um, even for people who are in their last years or months of life, there should be no question they should still be receiving proper care. And in fact, I would argue they should be receiving the best care of their lives. I mean, we talk a lot about birth and we talk a lot about childhood as normal parts of life. So aging and dying similarly are normal parts of life where we need to provide people you know, a palliative care approach. And we need to, alongside with that, make sure that they're provided proper dignity and respect and comfort and ensure that it's not just the resident that's being looked after, but also their loved ones. Yes, absolutely. And then how important is the presence of a loved one for a person that is palliative or end of life, especially in long-term care and especially during the time of COVID? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, family caregivers uh, in long-term care homes are essential partners in care. Um, They are people who need to be integrated as part of the healthcare team. And I'm in absolute disagreement with any sort of policy that sort of locks them out and sort of forbids them from entering a long-term care home. I mean, uh, what happens in many of those situations in the context of COVID and what has happened is that when um, there was not enough staff and not enough family caregivers, it left residents doubly vulnerable. And basically what that means, those, these are the, the appalling humanitarian crisis situations where we saw people not just dying from COVID-19, but we saw people dying from dehydration and hunger. So that absolutely cannot be allowed to happen. And I'll be honest, family caregivers in these situations were often the first people to alert everyone um, when something was going terribly wrong, when there wasn't enough staff on site, as I just mentioned, when people were not receiving basic care and when there needed to be a hospital management order or outside intervention right away. It was the family members um, that had to raise the alarm. And that really shows us that public health and the long-term care administration, as well as different levels of government, have to listen to and um, recognize um, the expertise of family caregivers uh, in long-term care. And I really feel we're having this conversation now about national standards in long-term care. So it's so important that we make sure that family caregivers are at that table not in a performative way where yeah. they're just sort of used as a token, but actually where their expertise and knowledge is integrated into sort of our overhaul of the long-term care system. Um, specifically, when we're talking about COVID-19, I will also add that in order to allow family caregivers to enter long-term care homes safely, um, it is once again critical that we have enough staff uh, yes. to, to make sure that safely happens. 
So I will say that staffing is really, you know, a, a, a big part of the COVID-19 crisis in long-term care. And uh, when homes become understaffed, well, that's when maybe they don't have enough people to, you know, um, screen family members who are coming in, give them proper PPE and make sure that, you know, they are allowed access. But that is an absolute travesty and that can never have, it, sh it should never, ever happen again. And um, I will add that um, I think that national standards need to include um, this and as well as on a provincial level, level there needs to be legislation passed and enforced that um, in, that allows family caregivers to continue to enter long-term care homes um, and have full access to their loved ones. Thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate that. And I do want to thank you so much for your time, Dr. Arya, for coming on and speaking to about palliative care and end of life. And that will be great for our listeners to take back this knowledge and then move forward with that. So again, I just want to thank you again for your time. Thank you for joining us this week on the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Make sure to visit us at our Facebook page at Family Council's Collaborative Alliance and make sure that you subscribe to our show on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you happen to subscribe to your podcast. And while you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate an iTunes rating or simply if you could tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. So again, just wanted to thank you for listening and until next week, take care.